That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. I was getting ready to leave one day to go to Ohio, I think it was, and he walked out and threatened me with a loaded shotgun to my head and said, you're not going. I was up to 180 milligrams of morphine a day and 80 milligrams of Percocet. I had it all. And because of the drugs, I lost it all. I tried the Kratom, and within 20 minutes, my pain was gone. And I mean, literally, I was at a point where I was ready to put a bullet in my head because I was so painful. It is an amazing, amazing plant. Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. Today, we bring you some fascinating real-life stories in part two of our series on Kratom. Kratom is a leafy plant from Southeast Asia, from the coffee family. It's been growing in popularity as some say it could be an alternative to opioids and may help combat the opioid crisis. Despite appearing to be reasonably safe and many stories of success, some governmental organizations have issued warnings against its use, making claims which Kratom's advocates say just aren't true. Instead, the general consensus of the Kratom community and organizations like the Botanical Education Alliance is that the criminalization of natural supplements should be discouraged and that there should be safe and effective access to substances like Kratom for those who need it. Now, we dive into the most fascinating part of all, stories from people who say Kratom has changed and maybe even saved their lives. Adrian is a 62-year-old mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother in Jamestown, New York. She became medically addicted to pharmaceuticals and eventually lost everything. She tells host Carla Stevens Tolstoy about her difficult life, the story of getting clean, and how she came to be an advocate fighting against drug addiction today. When I was 17, I got pregnant with my daughter, my first daughter, and Toward the end of my pregnancy, I developed the worst headache I've ever had in my life. I thought I was going to die. For three days, it was nonstop, non-let up. And I went to the doctor, and he said, oh, it's the flu. It's attacking the nerve endings in your brain. And I'm like, that doesn't sound right. I'd be dead. So he put me on uh, Fiorinol with codeine. There was my first foray into the narcotics. And I, and, I mean, he gave me enough to keep me going months at a time, you know. And then I found out it was migraines. I'd never had a migraine before in my life, but that's what it was. And I would pop a pill whenever the migraine would start. It would help. But then it got to the point where it wouldn't help anymore, so they switched me to another narcotic, Lortabs or something. And that helped for a while, but then it changed. So instead of finding me alternatives, they just kept giving me different narcotics and upping the doses. And then when I was 24, I was diagnosed with arthritis, severe arthritis. But it was the headaches that, that got me. The arthritis, my knees hurt and my arms hurt, but I didn't really realize that it was arthritis. I was overweight all my life, and I thought it was just a consequence of being overweight. What was going on also in your personal life, if, if I can ask? 
Well, I was married to a man who was very, very mentally abusive, extremely mentally abusive. He never touched me physically, but he was he was horrible. He used to tell me that he could cheat on me because I was too fat and ugly for anybody else to want me. He was just extremely cruel, and he didn't want to work. He wanted me to work and support him. We lived in a hovel, bare insulation on the walls, and, and he wanted to raise our child that way, and it was like, you know, it's horrible. So after eight years of marriage, I left him. Do you think you married him because you wanted to get away from another situation or did you no, really no, fall I in love a, and you were... I had a wonderful, wonderful upbringing. My parents were very loving and supportive. We did stuff. They got me a horse in my teenage years and they were just... My dad turned his garage over into a barn for me, you know. No, I had a great childhood, but I was also very, very insecure terribly insecure because of my overweight. And he was the first guy that came along that that actually showed a, a real interest in me. And I latched onto that and I didn't want to let go of it. So here comes along this guy. Was he older than you? He was like a year older. And he paid attention to you and that probably felt amazing. It did. It did. And now mind you, I was 15. So you're also very, very impressionable. And I was with a group of friends, and we showed up at this guy's house. I actually met him at our local skating rink, (laughs) and uh, I thought he was cool. A little bit on the rough side, a little bit bad boy issues, you know. But um, he paid attention to me. And he was actually going steady with my cousin, (laughs) and he broke up with her to go with me. And how did that make you feel? It made me feel special. Yeah, it did, because I thought, wow, you know, I've actually got a boyfriend for the first time in my life. And I was only 15. It's not like I was drowning in old maidism. You know? Yeah, no. I, yeah, I know. Okay, so 15, you're in love. Did your parents like him? Yes and no. They thought he was a bit shady, but they accepted him for me. And he did several things during the time that we were together that hurt me, even before we got married. He cheated on me a couple times. He was going to break up with me, and I was distraught. I was just out of my mind because I thought if I lose him, I'll never have anybody else, which <laughs> as, as we get further into my story, you'll see is, is a joke, but I felt good. I felt special. You know, I he'd go horseback riding with me on my horse, and, and we went skating all the time. We went to the drive-in movies, and he just I got to do things I'd never done before. I mean, that is very addictive, that alone of somebody introducing you to new experiences and making you feel good about yourself and loved and wanted. Yeah. Did you did you have the baby before you got married or? We got married about two months into my pregnancy. And did you finish school or what did you do next with that? Actually, much to my parents' dismay, I dropped out of senior year about a month, in it, about a month into senior year. And I had good grades in school. I was a, I was a lack, lackluster student, but I got good grades anyway because I'm quite intelligent. I'm not a genius by any means, but I didn't have to study much to get decent grades. And that was thanks to genetics because both of my parents are very intelligent. I got married in September and I dropped out of school right just before I got married. And then I had my baby in May. But I went back and got my GED later on. Oh, okay. That's, that's good. Yeah. It's hard and I to actually go went to college for a while. Oh, wow. Okay, that is good. Okay, so you you get married. You probably have this vision of your life being 
with a white picket fence and oh yeah roses and you know right and you had this great life this vision and when do you think you realize that oh it's not going as my fantasy said it would go there was a lot of lying in our marriage he worked in a in a factory and then the factory closed and uh, so he got a job working construction with a friend of ours and he would come home and say he didn't pay me again and we were desperate i mean i didn't even have diapers for the baby and we were desperate and so he would go borrow money from his mother which she always handed over and so this friend that he was working for construction they came to my house one day and i said you know don't you think that it's not fair that he's doing all this work and you're not paying him and he and his wife were just flabbergasted they say adrian we pay him every week he was spending it up at the bar and not bringing it home to his wife and child and just lies like that he would tell me he was dying of some deadly disease but never saw a doctor and and then the day I had our second daughter, he quit his job, and he's, he never worked a regular job again. In 40-some 40, 40 years, he's never worked a regular job. But I knew after he quit his job, the day I had my daughter, he quit his job. And uh, I knew that it was not going to last. Did you have all the bills that rested on your shoulders now? Did you have to figure out how to pay everything? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, we had our water shut off for six months because he, he wouldn't help me pay the water bill. I mean, water bill, $23 every three, three months, and it didn't get paid. We had our electric shut off. We had no gas for cooking. Uh, I cooked for six months on an electric fry pan, one electric fry pan. But I just was going to make a go of it no matter what. Did you feel like you didn't want people to know that you couldn't make it work? Did you feel like embarrassment? Like what, what stopped you from kind of saying, this is it, I'm done, I'm moving uh, back home? I, I didn't really have a problem with other people knowing because I just, I, I guess I was naive, you know, but I, but I was smart enough to talk to my family so they knew what was going on. So they were very, very supportive of me. I guess the the final straw on it was the day that he, I, I used to drive local delivery truck for a, a local, a huge company that we have here. I was one of their truck drivers and I would make out of, out of state trips. You know, I just drove a small truck, but I did out of state deliveries and pickups. And he accused me of not nice things with other truck drivers on the road. So I was getting ready to leave one day to go to Ohio, I think it was, and he walked out and threatened me with a loaded shotgun to my head and said, you're not going. He said, if you go, we're done. What was going through your your mind? Oh, I was furious. I was furious. I was the only one working, bringing in money, and he was going to stop me from going because of his stupidity. So you were more angry than scared? Oh, I wasn't scared. He was, he's, he's too much of a coward to shoot. Then I knew that. But that was the day that I decided that we were done because he caused me to lose my job. So now we're both unemployed because they fired me. If I couldn't make the trip, I was fired. Were you out of love with him by then? Very much so. Very much. I knew that if I stayed with him, well, he started being cruel to, our do- to my daughter, to my older daughter. He, he was very cruel. He'd kick her toys out of the way and break them. Um, he'd spank her for not hardly any reason at all. Yeah, no, I was well out of love with him by that time. 
did you move back with your family or where did, where did I you? I moved back in with my family for a very brief time. And then I found a, a darling little apartment above a garage, very close to home. It was just like a half a block away from my grandparents. I was working part-time and I also received like $90 a month in welfare. Do you know where your ex-husband is now? Do you keep in contact? I sure do. He lives five miles from me. In fact, we just spent Thanksgiving because my daughters wanted him to come for Thanksgiving. Did he remarry, have kids, or what ha- What? What did his life? He, he married my cousin that, that he had broken up with to go with me. He, When I left him, he married her. And they, they were together for 27 years until she passed away in 2010. Really? Yeah, he went right back to her. And did they have kids together? They did not have any kids together, but she already had three kids, I think. And then, he, of course, he had his two that he was very neglectful of. But So between the two of them, they had five kids. So no, they never had children. Has he begged for forgiveness? Oh, no. Oh, no. In fact, he has called me every name in the book. Um, I'm a vile person. I'm, I'm totally out of my mind crazy. Uh, no, it was, it was r- real bad for years. I mean, he turned me in for child neglect several times. And, but I, I kind of got vindicated because they turned it around on him and they lost their kids for several years because they were drinking and locking the kids up in the apartment and leaving them home alone while they went out and drank. And so, um, my kids actually told them, no, mommy's really good to us, but daddy, you know, so I, I was kind of vindicated that way. So now you're, you've left, um, your husband. Now you're, you're in pain and you're on pharmaceutical medication. Right. Right. Not so much back then. I mean, it was, yes, I had some, but it wasn't a problem back then. It, 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 of course, I wouldn't have recognized it as a problem anyway, because the doctor said it's okay. But I mean, we didn't, back then we didn't really hear that much about addiction. I mean, you had people that smoked pot and took LSD, but, but those were, you know, for fun. Um, but medically the doctors say it's okay. So, but I, I really didn't have that much. And there were periods during that time where I didn't take anything. Um, so it wasn't like it was a never ending constant problem until I got more toward my forties. So thirties, did you, did you remarry? Did you? I went six years after I left my first husband and then I met the guy who I thought was going to be Prince Charming. I, he was just, he was tall. I thought he was good looking. He looked like Superman, big guy, made me feel little. And I mean, he, we struck it off the night we met and he moved in with me a week later. And then the little problems here and there started where he was working, but he'd only give me $50 a week toward the household budget. Yeah, he drank, but he was good to me to a point. I mean, he never went out of his way to do anything really nice for me, but he wasn't mean to me. And the reason that I left him was an unfortunate incident with my youngest daughter. And I won't get into details about that, but it was an unforgivable sin. I don't know how I find these guys, you know. <laughs> he, quit, he quit working. I was working full time. He was basically living off of me for nothing. It was during the time that I was with him that I actually started using the, the narcotic pain meds more. I, I didn't realize that the pain, the, the meds were actually making my pain worse. So I'd keep going back every month. I got my prescription and it was, it was huge. I mean, it was huge prescription, morphine and Percocet, two of the stronger main pain meds. 
And how many would you be taking a day? Uh, let's see. I started out at 90 milligrams a day of morphine and 120 milligrams a day of Percocet. 10 milligrams, you know, Percocet, which is 12 pills a day plus um, three times a day with 30 milligrams of morphine. And how did they, um, how did they make you feel? How were how did you feel like mentally, emotionally, physically? Well, I was in a fog most of the time, a brain fog. My memory definitely suffered. I would fall asleep at inappropriate times, like while I was driving. I, I smoke, and I had cigarette burns everywhere in my house, in my chairs, in my floor. Most of my clothes had cigarette burns in them because I'd fall asleep and drop the cigarette. I used to be a very loving, vibrant, healthy, could-do-anything type of person, and I became a slug. All I did was sit in my house and watch TV, and I had terrible insomnia. I mean, it would be like 3, 4 o'clock in the morning before I could finally fall asleep. So this idea that narcotics will help you sleep is maybe first at first, that you build up a tolerance to them, and then you, I developed insomnia. Not everybody does, but I did. How was your mental state? How were you emotionally? Were you depressed? Were you anxious? One of the doctors tried to tell me I was depressed. I was having a real hard time with my knees. My knees hurt just terribly. And uh, x-rays showed that the cartilage was gone in my knees. But I was only uh, young 50s. And so I went to several different doctors to see if I could get a knee replacement, which they told me I needed, but they didn't want to do it because I was so young. And, you know, I, I, I came back with, well, what do you want? You want me to be in a wheelchair and not able to move before you decide to do it? You know, other people have knee replacements. And, well, anyway, I went to this one doctor, and he was a tall, thin, fairly good-looking doctor. And, and I walked in, and, and I told him, you know, what my problem was. And he looked at me, and he says, well, I know what your problem is. You're obese. And I lost it. I just started to cry. And, and he says, oh, well, and you're depressed. He said, your crying proves you're depressed. I said, no, you made me cry. Don't you think I look in the mirror every day and see how fat I am? I don't need you to tell me of it. And, you know, but then I found this marvelous doctor in another town. He was an old doctor and he was great. And he said, honey, you need your knee replaced. And within a week it was done. But, of course, during that time, they upped the pain meds, too. And so when did it get to the point that the, the high doses of medication started to affect other I, parts of your uh, life? I'd, I'd met and married my third husband. Now, remember back when I told you that I married the first one because I didn't think I could ever, you know, if I lost him, I was done? Mm-hmm. I, I met this man. My girlfriend and I had gone out to this dance hall. Uh, country Western Dance Hall, and this guy came up and sat down beside me, asked me to dance, and before we got off the dance floor, I had a date with him, and we never missed a day of seeing each other for the next year. I mean, every day, and he'd call me several times a day, and, and <laughs> in fact, my daughter, my oldest daughter was with me that night, and when I came off the dance floor after the first dance, she said, is he going to be my new dad? And I mean, she was 21, so she wasn't a kid. And I said, yeah, I think so. I knew the night I met him, I was going to marry him. He didn't know it, or he'd have probably run for the hills. But I knew I could feel that he was the one I was going to marry. And a year later, I did. 
and it was marvelous. And he treated me beautifully, and we had such a good marriage, and we just loved each other so very much. But he is an alcoholic. And he told me one time, don't make me choose between you and my beer, because you'll lose. And after almost 15 years of marriage, I did lose, because I just couldn't take the, the drinking anymore. He was always good to me, unless he was really drunk. And then it, the, the, just pick, 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 keep me up all night talking because of my failures. Was he a good financial provider? Oh, heaven, Jeff. Heaven, Jeff. He, he took me on a couple cruises. We went to Las Vegas three times. Um, he'd, he'd send me home at odd times during the year to visit my parents. He'd, he'd show up at my work with a plane ticket in his hand and say, I've already talked to your boss. You've got the next week off. Go home. I mean, he was just surprises all the time, and he was so good to me. And to be honestly truthful, I miss it terribly because he was that good to me. But it was the drinking that got in the way. And at that point is when I had the second knee operation, and he was, he was the paramedic that got me into becoming a paramedic. And he was always, he felt inadequate because he couldn't fix me. He couldn't fix my pain. He says, I can help other people, but I can't help you. So in a way, he was my enabler because he would, you better go to the doctor. You better get more pain meds because we didn't really understand the addiction thing. And in a way, it kind of became a joke because I was always the designated driver. He drank. I did drugs. And it was embarrassing when he'd tell people that, but I always kind of laughed it off because I didn't see myself as addicted. Even and, and at that point, I was up to 180 milligrams of morphine a day and 80 milligrams of Percocet. They, then every so often, they'd switch me over to OxyContin, which is the, the artificial morphine. Um, and it's highly, highly addictive. Although when, they, when the um, drug companies brought it to the market, they told the doctors, prescribe it. It's not addictive go ahead and prescribe as much as you want. It's not addictive. And they marketed it heavily, you know, teddy bears and baseball caps and coffee cups and whatever with Oxycontin on them. Take this. It's the new miracle drug. drug. You can't get addicted, blah, blah, blah. Um, I was so addicted. It was just unbelievable. Did it make you feel even more bloated? Did it, did it screw up your system, oh, your intestines? My swelling was off the charts. My pain was off the charts because there's a thing called rebound effect where your body, when, once you become addicted, your body wants more and more. Even though your brain might not, you know, it, consciously you might not want more, but your body wants more. And so the, it, your pain manifests itself even stronger so that you will put more drugs into your body. And I mean, that's a well-known effect. I didn't realize it at the time because my brain was so foggy from the drugs. So I just said, oh, I hurt. I need more drugs. And at that point, it was not just my knees. It was my hands, my elbows, my shoulders, my even to sit down hurt. My feet were unbelievably painful. I couldn't stand for more than five minutes at a time until my feet were burning to where I couldn't even walk. Holidays were uh, horrible. Because I was the one that was in charge of doing most of the cooking and cleaning my parents' house, getting ready for these holidays. And I would collapse from the pain. And I didn't realize that it was the drugs doing it. 
Yeah, because you would think, okay, I'm getting worse. I need, I need more drugs. Oh yeah, I need more. I need more. Give me, and they were so obliging to give me more. So this love of my life, this man who was so good to me, I started shutting him out. I moved into another bedroom so my insomnia wouldn't keep him awake so he could get up and go to work. We stopped being a husband and wife. We were just kind of roommates. Although he was still good to me, still said he loved me, um, we still went out and had fun, and but our relationship changed. And it was like I couldn't see it. I was blaming it all on his drinking. I couldn't see that it was my addiction that was also hurting us. It was a two-way street. Neither one of us was innocent. And I stopped caring. All I could think about was my pain and my drugs. And that's what they do to you. So after 15 years of marriage and the perfect idyllic life that we were leading, I had horses. I was raising golden retrievers. I had goats. We lived in the country in the place that I wanted that he bought for me, even though he had to drive 45, 50 miles to work every day. I had it all. And because of the drugs and his drinking, I lost it all. Because he, he asked me one night, do you still love me? And I said, I don't know. And he said, then I think it's time for you to go home to New York. And it was very, very difficult. That was the end of my life down there, which I was 20 years down there, and I loved it. And I came home, moved in with my parents for six months, brought two of my golden retrievers with me, left him with the rest, which he immediately farmed out to other people. But I was still on the drugs. I still had my drugs. So I, you know, moved in, um, my parents, uh, my mother uh, had a friend who had a little tiny house that was sitting empty. So I rented that, moved in here with my dogs, um, and immediately started falling asleep and burning my furniture and burning my bathroom floor, which is still bearing the marks because I haven't replaced it yet as a reminder. And of course I transferred to a doctor up here and they have, they run a pain clinic up here and they have 7,000 people a month that they deal pain meds to 7,000 in our little town. How many, how big is your town? About 34,000 people. Oh my Lord. Yep. That the drug epidemic in this town is off the charts. That's just the ones that go to the clinic. Yes, that's right. We've had probably close to 30 overdoses this year. And, and granted, it's heroin, but when you can't get pain meds, when you can't get your, your morphine or your Oxycontin, that, because they're expensive, an Oxycontin pill can go as high as $80 for one pill on the street. And so they turn to heroin because you can get, you can get a baggie of heroin for 10 bucks. Or, or their meth is huge here. Methamphetamines is huge here. New York State changed the laws, and they said, you got to start cutting back on how much you're prescribing. And my doctors told me, well, we're going to cut you back. We'll do it slowly, but we're going to cut you back. And, of course, everybody was kicking and fighting about it. You can't take my drugs away, but the law said yes. So the next month when I went in to um, get my prescription filled, the PA who was doing the figuring... um, she miscalculated my dosages, and I went from 180 milligrams a day to 90. One 90 pill, 90 milligram pill of morphine. And I ran out of Percocet because I was supplementing the morphine with a Percocet. 
So consequently, halfway through the month, I was out and I called him and I said, you got to do something. Well, you're not due to come in until, you know, the end of the month. And I said, then help me get off of them. Get me, you know, Suboxone or whatever to get me off of these pills. If you're not going to help me, you know, give me the pills, then help me get off of them. And I was totally 100% ignored. They didn't answer me. They didn't respond. They didn't help. And I went into full-blown from 180 milligrams of morphine and and 80 milligrams of Percocet into full-blown cold turkey withdrawals. I could have died. I know a lady that died because her doctor cut her off cold turkey, and within a week, she was dead of a massive heart attack. Her body went into shock. Did you admit yourself to a hospital? Like, how did you, no. how did you deal no. with that? Suboxone off the street. Because that's, it's floating around here like crazy, because they, they prescribe Suboxone so heavily, and they keep people on it for so long that it's easy to find. Just a little tab, you know, about a quarter-inch square. And we cut that into three pieces, and I took one-third a day for the first day, The next day, I took half of that, so a sixth of a tab. And the third day, I took the rest of it, which was minuscule, nothing. And the fourth day, I was off. No more Suboxone. My withdrawals lasted three months. Did you ever say... I need my drugs and relax. No. Like, how did you, how no, did you stay because strong? I didn't have that addictive mindset. I knew that I was, I was taking them the way I was prescribed. I didn't have that abusive mindset where I got to have it. I got to have it. All I knew was I wanted off of them. Okay. So now you're going, okay, what am I going to, how, how am I going to deal with this going forward? Well, I, I took Tylenol. I took, you know, extra strength Tylenol three times a day. And, I, you know, it, it's funny because I was afraid to go off the pain meds because I did not know what my true pain level was. I couldn't walk. I couldn't, I didn't want to do anything. I was in so much pain. Within a week after I went off the pain meds, my swelling went down in my legs. My pain level went down probably 90%, literally 90%. Now, mind you, it took, my, it took my body three months to get completely clean of the effects of the narcotics. But my brain, it took a week at best when I knew I would never take them again. And I, it, it, to, to find out that my pain, you know, it's still bad. I mean, I've got polymyalgia rheumatica. I've got fibromyalgia. I've got severe arthritis. I have um, pseudo-gout, and I have heel spurs. So I've got several issues that are all pain-related. But my life has done a 180-degree turnaround. I am out walking my dogs. Um, I went kayaking a couple months ago. Um, Never thought ever in my life I could do that. Um, I I want to get back into horseback riding. I miss that terribly. And, and these are all things that I could never have done while I was on the pain meds. How much has your ability to focus and concentrate and um, like how much smarter do you feel off the drugs? Oh, 100%. I do still have some memory issues. And that was because of the drugs. There are things that I just don't remember. Sometimes it takes me two days to remember something that I'm, you know, like the name of a person or something. But I have a, a good intelligence. 
and that has come back to me. I stopped being a slug, and I'm actually an intelligent human being again. And this brings us to, you know, Kratom, which I've been told is actually pronounced in Malaysia, um, Kratom. Some people call it Kratom. Some people call it Kratom. Uh, my, my, my girls call it Kratom. I've started calling it Kratom, but a lot of people do call it Kratom. So it's, however you want to pronounce it, it all comes out the same. It is an amazing, amazing plant. And honestly, I don't know where my life would be without it. The Tylenol wasn't cutting it. I was in terrible pain. I went to the doctors and I said, I guess I'm going to have to do something. Can you get me on Altram or Tramadol, which is a, a synthetic narcotic? Um, the doctor gave me a month's supply and he says, before we can let you back in the program, you have to do a drug assessment. So I went and I did the drug assessment and they denied helping me because they said, there's too much alcoholism in my family. Now, mind you, I'm the one that chose to get off the drugs. I'm the one that went a year and a half without anything, and yet they're denying me help because there's alcoholism in my family. It was a lame excuse. The reason they denied me was because when he failed to help me get off the drugs, I wrote a letter. And I'm very, very articulate in writing letters. And I told him he was nothing but a medically sanctioned drug pusher because I was furious that he wouldn't help me. And I sent that letter to every doctor in their service. So it was well read. <laughs> and he apparently has a thin skin and didn't want to deal with me anymore. I'm still with the same doctor's office, but I don't, I don't do the pain clinic anymore. So I tried the Kratom, and within 20 minutes, my pain was gone. And I mean, literally, I was at a point where I was ready to put a bullet in my head because I was so painful. I was crying in so much pain. It really is a very unique plant. I mean, even I talked to a Harvard professor about it, and he would really like funding to really start to understand it more. Well, they need to study it because they're trying to ban it. Pharmaceuticals have developed a, an artificial Mitrogena speciosa, I believe is the proper name for it. I might be mispronouncing it, but um, they have developed their own artificial. So they want to ban the natural product because they can't control the natural product. It's God-given. It's on the earth. But they've developed their own style of it, and they want to market that. And nobody's going to buy the pharmaceuticals product while they can get the natural product. So that's why they're, you know, they're trying to ban They're put, trying to put it in the same... Um, a classification as heroin. And it's so not anything like heroin. It's a natural, God-given plant. It's an herbal supplement. It's a plant. It's, it's a leaf off a tree from the coffee plant. It's, it's not a coffee plant, you know, itself, but it's of the same genus. Did you have to try a few strains? Like what, which? I started out with red vein, which is the one that's most effective for pain. It sounds weird, but there's all three strains on the tree, red, white, and green. It's just the age of the leaf. The, the red is an older leaf, white is the youngest leaf, and green is in between. The white vein is energetic. It gives you energy. It gives you mad energy. It doesn't get you high. It just gives you energy. It also works for pain, but not as well as the red. The green is in between. 
Green is kind of, it's not sedating. It's just chills you out, mellows you out. It helps with the pain. It gives you a little energy, and it's just in between. And the red, it can be sedating to, depending on how much you take, but it's, it's mostly, you know, good for the pain. And that's what I started out taking, and I took it for probably a year and a half. And then my daughter told me, Mom, you know you get what's called same-strain syndrome, where it becomes not as effective. So I switched up, and I started using a mix of white and green. And it, again, controlled my pain better. And so now I just mix it up. I just mix it up. Every every couple months, I, I switch strains. The white, it's really good for mood enhancement? and. Yeah anxiety, um, that veterans take it for, it helps with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. It's amazing. It is saving soldiers' lives, veterans' lives that would be committing suicide because of their anxieties and their fears and, and you know, what they went through in the war. It's saving their lives. I just gave some to a young gentleman on my daughter's side of the family, her husband's side, he has been on Suboxone for a long time, which is what they use to detox off of drugs. Well, once you're, and that's very addicting. It's as addicting as the drugs are. So once you're on Suboxone or, uh, you know, these other drugs that they use, methadone, you know, how do you get off of that? Because that's just as addicting as the drugs. And they keep you on it for years. And so he, he called my daughter and he says, what can I do? I want to, he says, I've been clean for two weeks. He said, but I'm struggling with it. I want to relapse. So she sent him to me, and I gave him some. I gave him about a week's worth. And he told me, I mean, we, we were very open with each other. And he told me that he was uh, terrible anxiety. He said, I got to go to the mall. I got to go shopping. But I have terrible anxiety around people. Do you think this will help? And I said, I'm sure it will. He called my daughter an hour later. He said, oh, my God. He said, the cravings are gone. The anxiety is gone. He said, you know, why doesn't the whole world know about this plant? Because he literally went from wanting to relapse to being absolutely cool, chilled out, and fine in one hour. I agree. I, I find that the benefits are unbelievable. I mean, I've talked to people who have life-changing stories like yourself. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have tested it, and I cannot believe... Um, how these different strains work so well for different things. And I've, I've shared it with other people who've had different ailments, and they've been shocked. I, I belong to a senior citizens group. I go with my dad. He's, you know, pushing 87. And I joined it several years ago with my parents to, to help with my mom. She was, you know, severely disabled in that. And um, I just continue to go in because I like the people. But there are several of the women that have issues. One is severe anxiety, social anxiety. I gave her some and she liked the effect of it. So she bought some. And every time I see her, I ask her, how are you doing? She says, really well. And there's a couple other people that were in, you know, pretty bad pain. When you get up in your eighties and nineties, you got a lot of aches and pains and they don't like the, the drugs. So I said, here, try this. And I'd give them a dose of it. And they'd come back and say, it's gone. The pain is gone. It doesn't interfere with any other medications. It doesn't show up on drug screens because it's a plant. And it's quite affordable. Very affordable. You you can get 2.2 pounds of it for $100. 
that a 2.2 pounds lasts for like six months or more. You know, it's just, it's amazing. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors, and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes, organizations, and groups that we're passionate about, and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles, and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace, with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. Our second and final guest for this episode is David Dirian, who spoke to us last time on behalf of the Botanical Education Alliance. Today, he's telling Carla how he became addicted to painkillers, and after going to rehab, how important Crotum is to him now. You're born with an extra vertebrae. You don't know about this till you're a teenager. You're dealing with a lot of pain growing up, but you just think it's, you just think that that's like normal. Because that's your normal, would you say? You just thought that everybody has back pain? Yeah, well said. You tell your parents, what do they say? Are they like, whoa, that sounds strange? Or you know, you, no, you, you need to exercise more, you know, you need to stretch. That's yeah. what they say. I feel like that's something Which is true. a parent would say. And I feel like, oh God, maybe I would say that to my son too. And where did you grow up? In Richmond, Virginia and Greenwich, Connecticut. Okay. Then your doctors medicated you. Yeah, I went to college in South Florida in Broward County, which is kind of like the epicenter of that whole uh, Oxycontin outburst and yeah. uh, pain management doctors in Broward County. Oh, yeah, I know. Sent it well. me down the wrong path. And so, okay, how old were you when you went out to college there? 18. So you're 18, you go out there, and were you already doing like recreational drugs and cannabis? Yeah, so just like what every teenager does. Sure. Maybe a little more than most. Yeah. Wow. It's a relative term these days, I think. So you go, you go to the pain clinic because your back's hurting and they just say, okay, try these oxys or maybe this painkiller will help. Sure. Well, I started with, you know, Vicodin and Percocet and then increased to, you know, harder, stronger stuff. Like how much did you love that? I mean, like I I don't get Vicodin um, or Percocets or stuff very often. 
Um, and when I do, I'm just like, oh man, this is awesome. Like you've <laughs> all I thought about and, and did for uh, 15 years, consumed all thoughts. Because it's so, it makes you feel so just good. thinking about this last night, like I never ran out. So I never like got sick and got you know, all that stuff that other pretty people go through because I was so adamant on making sure I, you know, never ran out. I was terrified of that. And did you, wait, did you graduate? Yeah. You graduate and you got a job? I was running a company. I had a glass blowing business at the time. I started while I was in college and uh, was doing really well. And uh, then the opioids came into my life and everything went to shit. But how did you pay for all the opiates? Insurance paid for it. Oh, and so did you? Could you work while you were doing all the opiates, or was there date? Was there times you didn't work? Or I've always run my own businesses, and during that time, there was a a, a rash of failures. I, I hate. I've had some business failures. God, it's the shittiest feeling in the whole fucking world. But I don't even have an excuse of saying I was addicted to something. I just fucked up myself. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy, like sometimes yeah. I would like the concept of being like, fuck, then I made some bad decisions. I got drunk. Instead, it's like, no, I was an idiot. Do you know what I mean? Like, like so you have, sure, you made sure. some bad business decisions because of the opiates, but how many would you need to continue to feel that high a day? Um, I was taking about like eight Oxycontin, 80 milligrams a day, minimum, or, you know. That was like the baseline. Uh, what I can't believe is the feeling of like self-confidence and the feeling like you can do anything. I mean, it really, and it makes you actually want to do stuff like, like work and be, do you find that when you were on it? Like it made you more ambitious? At first. Okay. And then I spent a lot of time chasing that feeling. Okay. And how, how long does it last then when you're chasing it? Like. Uh, I think the the euphoria was, you know, gone within the first year. Really, you get glimpses of it, but you know, uh, it's it's called maintenance at that point. And you're you're feeling subnormal, so you have to take all this stuff to feel less than normal. And what about your brain? How did you find your brain ability to learn? to um, assess situations? Like, did you ever get that, um, like, fog feeling? I disconnected to my spiritual side. My purpose and identity were, were definitely disconnected. But could you handle your business stuff? Yeah, I'm, I'm a capable person. Um, I, I watch most everybody around me's life completely self-destruct, but um, I was a functioning addict. Okay. What, what do you, why do you think some addicts are functioning versus others? What makes a functioning addict? Um, some people are strong. Some people are, are less strong. Some, some people are you know, programmed to, to do well in this, this society and this setup. And, you know, some people are, are less. So what do you do? Like right now, do you not have that craving anymore? Like, is it just, you just, don't. No, I have a hatred for it. And, uh, uh, no, it's it's been eight years for me, and I don't think about it. I go back down to South Florida because I work down there sometimes and have a lot of family, and my skin crawls when I pass by the parking lots that I 
waited in and the pill doctors and the pharmacies and just being around all of it, this it repulses me. Really just drives in that, you know, how much I, I hated that part of my life. So how do you get that euphoria? Like, what do you think the answer is? Like, what is the, what <laughs> I'm looking for you to tell me, like, how does one get that euphoria feeling on their own? Is it, is it attainable? Yeah, you have to, you know, find something that, that you love to be addicted to that doesn't hurt you and those around you. For me, it's, it's turned into my business and you know, my business is model, which is to, to help people. I, I get, I get a high off that now. And how do you deal with the stresses of a business owner? Like just the stress of financials and I mean, all that stuff that comes with it. Does that stress you or are you just. We're in the most stressful business of, of them all. And, um, you know, we keep, keep building a uh, sand castles, you know, you build it up and it's beautiful and some, something comes and stomps it down. You gotta start all over again. Like it's very stressful, but I came from, from nothing with a dark place. So I'm, I'm above that at all times. And I contribute that to Kratom. And as long as I don't ever go back there, I'm, I'm okay. I sometimes feel as if, you know, like I'm, I, I should be dead. And everything that I do from, from this point on is a, is a, is, is less time and is, a really just like a you know a miracle that that I'm able to do what I'm doing so I'm thankful for that but I, I'm not dead and living in that hell do you have a family I do I have a 10 year old daughter a 7 year old daughter um, a wife from Brazil that I've been married to for 14 years and that's what really turned the, the road for me was the, the birth of my daughter she was 2 when I when I decided I had to go to rehab it didn't happen instantly but it did happen. And how was how did your like wife deal with all that? It was, you know, probably definitely the hardest thing that she's ever been through and you know, she worked with my mother and my family and stood by me and you know, it was it was hard. It was uh for you know, I, I'm surprised she didn't abandon me, but that's what I feel like with you know, Kratom is that it changes people's like lives. It gives them back that hope. And it's so scary to think that the government through lack of knowledge could take that away. Yeah. I don't even like to try to envision scenarios with, without it. I, I believe strongly that, that we will get through this. I have a, uh, it's like glimpses of the future that, that I feel. And I, I think uh, we're, we will get through this and, what that looks like to me is, you know, multiple companies filing compliant NDIs and kind of, you know, slowly growing the uh, the, the core industry of, of of companies that are, you know, of capable abilities to navigate these sort of things, and the mom and pop vendors will will subside um, as the importation of product that is not imported as a dietary supplement is, is strangled out. Mm-hmm. So these, 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 you know, Kratom, Kratom dealers have to really start working on the paperwork. Very much so. Or face the, the consequences, which is, you know, uh, 
for them could be loss of all product. It could be a recall, could be heavy legal fees, destruction, or even possible jail time. And David knows about this situation well. His main business venture is INI Botanicals, and as we mentioned, he's the co-founder of the Botanical Education Alliance. Back in 2010, Crotum had not really made a name for itself in the U.S. After experiencing the benefits firsthand, David decided to make a business out of it. Despite his best efforts, several states began trying to ban Crotum, causing a domino effect. He was eventually forced to take his product off the market. David didn't back down. He believes Crotum has and will continue to save lives. He's been fighting for its acceptance, filing the necessary paperwork, and plans to bring his product back to market soon. He does have a resource available showing the legality of Crotum in each of the American states. We'll include that in the show notes for this episode at StandUpSpeakUpBlog.com. Crotum can be sold by licensed vendors in Canada, but only for aromatherapy use and not for ingestion. Next time on Stand Up Speak Up, more stories from users of Crotum. And don't go anywhere. For our bonus content today, you won't want to miss more of our interview with Adrian from earlier this episode. Sadly, Adrian's children and grandchildren went on to be addicted to painkillers as well. But now, her granddaughter has gained over 100,000 Facebook followers on her recovery journey. What the fuck am I doing? I've had two years clean. What the fuck am I doing? God, what have I done? What is wrong with me? Why the fuck did I get this bag? Why can't I see what you see, Lord, if you're real? Give me the strength to throw it away because I am nothing on my own accord. I'm weak and I'm so afraid. I'm begging you to take this from me. I can't do this alone. Where is this peace beyond understanding? Because chaos is all I know. I feel the devil and he's pushing me. He's whispering in my ear. But Father God, if you're near, then show me that you're here. What you've just heard is from a video created by a girl named Shonda Lynn. She's risen to internet fame for posting videos like these on her journey to recovery from addiction. At the time of producing this podcast, her page had nearly 150,000 followers. What we hadn't told you is that Shonda Lynn is the granddaughter of Adrian, who we spoke with earlier on the show. Here's more from Adrian. I, I was still getting the drugs, but I kept running out. I never took... Very rarely did I ever take as many as were prescribed to me. I always took the morphine or the Oxycontin, my three a day. But I rarely took all of the um, Percocets that I was given. And I was given 180 Percocets a month. But I'd still run out. And I couldn't figure out why. It's like I count out my pills every day. How can I possibly be running out? Until I realized that I had a daughter that was stealing them from me. Anytime she came to my house, she was stealing my pills. Um, And I had two of my grandchildren who were very, very addicted. And I must admit, and I will admit freely, that I was an enabler. They would come to me and say, oh, my God, I'm in so much pain. Can you give me a pill? Well, sure, I I have extras. So I'd give them a couple pills. And then my grandson came to me. And this was another thing that I'm very ashamed of, but I'm not going to deny. My grandson came to me and said, Grandma, I can make you some extra money. If you give me this many pills, I will sell them and we'll split the money. And I knew it was wrong, but I needed the money. And so I said, okay. The only problem was I never got any money back until I found out he wasn't selling them. He was using them himself. 
he was crushing them and snorting them. And I didn't realize how, how much I was enabling because I was naive. I thought I was helping my family. My one daughter would buy them from me at 10 bucks a pill. My other daughter was stealing them from me. And I'm not saying I started their addictions because I didn't. They were addicted before I ever came back from Texas. But I was enabling their addictions, and I didn't see it that way. I thought, well, mom's helping. Grandma's helping. The pain. My one grand, my granddaughter was up to 54 pills a day. You heard that right. 54 pills a day. After three generations of opioid addiction, we're happy to see things looking up for the family. Shonda Lynn is using her fame to spread an important message to others. And together with her grandmother, Adrian, they're both behind initiatives to put an end to the crisis in their community and beyond. We hope to speak with Shonda Lynn on a future episode of Stand Up, Speak Up. Thanks for listening and join us next time for more real-life stories from users of Crotum. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.